1: This morning we're going to talk a little about Lyme disease. I've been reading quite a bit about it. My question has been, like, how common is Lyme disease? According to health authorities, it is the most commonly reported vector-borne disease in Canada. But as for numbers, it's a little harder to pin down. It's difficult to diagnose. It is tough to treat. So much so that some people are traveling to other countries, like Mexico, to get treatment for this. Now, why is that, and is that a good idea? So, joining us now to work through some of this is Lenora Saxinger, who's a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Alberta. Lenora, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. How common is Lyme disease?
2: It depends very, very much where you are. Like when you look within North America, the rates of reported Lyme disease per hundred thousand people varies from you know like point zero something up to the hundreds. And so it's very, very intensely associated with where you are and what you're doing. And so the classically the very pla- the places with highest rates, especially in Canada, are places in the east coast. And very, very often with that kind of like no one's going to argue whether this is Lyme disease. Lyme disease. There's a well defined exposure. Like someone had a tick attached to them. They found it. They pulled it off. And you know the rest of it is relatively straightforward. I think we run into more problems in areas where Lyme disease is much, 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 much exponentially less common, but people have symptoms that sound very much like what a lot of Lyme disease um, practitioners who may or may not be like alternative medicine versus, um, I guess I'll say conventional or Western medicine based, um, say Lyme disease might be. And so, so there is a lot of confusion from that point forward. But at the end of the day, the risk is highly tied to where you are. Although I never say never because you never know how strange the world can be, but Right,
1: it's a huge, huge, huge factor, right? I can see that too. So are the symptoms generally the same? Like I'm wondering why it is difficult to diagnose for some people.
2: Well, I think the difficulty is really that, um, I mean, the early stages, there are some very specific things that are relatively straightforward that I think, you know, our medical system Um, will pick up because they're quite dramatic. So, you know, the rash, the erythema, uh, a large patch of a rash at the site of the tick bite. bite. Sometimes you don't notice that one, but you might get multiple of them, like within a short time period, related to that immune reaction to the tick bite um, where the the tick would have been attached because most of the disease is transmitted after it's been there a while. And then people can get kind of like virally symptoms, but then more specifically, they can have later effects on the heart Um, or on nerves or on the brain, which all sound quite terrifying, but are actually all quite treatable with antibiotics. And so that's kind of like the easy level of Lyme. There certainly are also people who will go on to have, um, who've had a tick bite and had all this stuff or might not have had some of those complications, but then go on to have a more kind of persistent illness that overlaps with a lot of what we experience in the world today. Um, And for people who've had, known Lyme disease, and they go on to have this kind of post-infectious syndrome, which in my mind I almost kind of wonder if there's some immune signals there that are going to turn out to be similar to other diseases. Those people actually, it's been found that long-term antibiotics don't necessarily help them, which is an interesting thing because we have a group of people who've had Lyme disease. We know they had Lyme disease. They have the common blood test is positive, and a very prolonged course of antibiotics doesn't necessarily make them any better. Then we have a group of people who didn't really have necessarily a known tick bite, weren't in a very high-risk area, but have a lot of multi-system symptoms. And if you go to any website, because there's a whole kind of parallel reality out there, you can look at your symptoms and it'll pretty much tell you that you very well could have Lyme disease. And, yeah. then, and
1: then a whole different path starts, right? Yeah, I could see how that would be very frustrating for doctors, but for the people too, because they just want to find out what's wrong with them.
2: Well, absolutely. And I mean, it's... And it can be very hard for people, especially when they have some, some you know, something that's clearly altering their health and their function. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's being taken seriously. And there's no one test that's going to give an answer. Frankly, people prefer in this uncertain world, a test that will give them an answer. And unfortunately, there are some for-profit tests that will give almost everyone who orders them an answer. And they'll say that they are likely to have Lyme disease, plus or minus some other infections. And it It also can look very, very scientific, but be misleading based on what we understand about the test.
1: But yet, you know, we know that people will go elsewhere for treatment. They'll do that. And I've been reading about people going down to Mexico for treatment of Lyme disease clinics that specialize in this. What are the dangers? Like, what would you like people to keep in mind if they consider something like that?
2: Well, I mean, I, I do think it's important to keep an open mind to what the diagnosis of your problems is, because if you go down the wrong path, Not only are you spending money on something that's not going to help you, which is never good for anybody, honestly. Like you see GoFundMes for this all the time. Um, But you miss the opportunity to diagnose whatever is really long. And sometimes that can be frustrating because a lot of things are not super clear cut. And in the meantime, um, you know, I think I'm I'm hoping that we're getting better at addressing people's symptoms. So at least they feel something's being done. But but classically, people are feeling desperate. And so this makes them feel very defensive to say that we don't think that this is the right thing to do. Um, But the the treatments themselves also um, can be difficult because they put in a a peripherally inserted central line or a central line, which is a line that we usually use for people for chemotherapies or long-term treatments, um, which is not a totally benign thing. There can be side effects from that. And then, you know, very complex and very, very long series of intravenous treatments, often involving IV antibiotics, often well in excess that I, as an infectious diseases physician, would give to anyone for pretty much anything. Um, And so that also will affect your body, obviously, being on antibiotics that long. And so it it really does become a cycle, I think, that is very um, consuming for people in pretty much every way.
1: I guess it also just tells us how much more we still need to learn about this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the reason that
2: people kind of take different paths is because they're meeting some resistance. Right. And
1: so um, they they want answers
2: yeah there, there's 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 lots to be done on helping determine the cause of of these i i think I think of them as very modern ailments these these syndromes that leave people basically close to disabled but with very little that we can do a single test for and so I think that that is actually now starting to happen with with you know post Lyme disease i mean post uh, post covid and probably also that might have some benefits for post anything and possibly for post-Lyme because I think that there's a lot of overlap there and hopefully we'll be able to find some better treatments. But in the meantime, I'm hoping people will think twice about getting months and months and months of
3: antibiotics.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. That's interesting that you say that though, that post-COVID that there could be some progress on this. Is that because we dig down a little deeper though when it comes to trying to figure out what people's symptoms are?
2: Yeah, I mean there's been a lot of um a lot of well, of course covid was a big deal and a, a lot of um, research groups have really taken on looking at things in much more detail than before in things that happen to you after you've had an infection and whether you know your body's response to that might in some way be the cause for some of the symptoms and what can be done about it. So I think that that research whether it turns out to be very highly related, you know, on the body basis Um, or on the science basis or not, is going to be beneficial for anyone who's having a a long-term syndrome with multiple symptoms that no one can figure out, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure. That's really interesting. Lenora Saxinger is a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Alberta. We're talking about Lyme disease. It does feel like we hear more about that these days. And uh, there is a concern that some people who they feel that they weren't perhaps accurately diagnosed, they go elsewhere, perhaps out of the country for treatment. There's clinics in, in places like Mexico that specialize in this. But the concern, as Lenora pointed out, is the type of treatment you're getting, antibiotics for long periods of time, it's still very challenging to kind of nail this disease down. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Scott Schatz this morning
0: and find out how he's doing. Are you excited about hockey season, Scott? So much so. Yeah, absolutely. I always find the off season to just drag and drag and drag because hockey, it's one of those things that I grew up with, like so many people here. And, you know, pretty consistently for a few months now, several months, many months, there will be hockey every night or every second night. And so I feel like I always have something to look forward to. And then the summer is just bleh, you know, if you're hockey always something fan. on
1: TV. During, yeah. as well, right at this time of year, though, I feel like this is nirvana for any sports True. fan. True enough. I mean, there's baseball playoffs, basketball season kicked off last night. Yep. You know, hockey season is Football. kicking. Off. It's all happening right now.
0: You betcha. And the Canucks home opener is tomorrow night at Rogers Arena against the Edmonton Oilers. That's exciting. But kind of the, the shine has kind of come off of some of the home opener stuff right now, because last week the NHL issued a message apparently to all the 32 teams in the nhl circling back on you remember last year there was all these issues around pride jerseys pride night and pride jerseys yeah it was such just like a, it just sucked because it took all the focus off of the game and off of this great thing that the nhl and these teams and players were doing and and it just seemed like I don't know. A lot of people, myself included, felt like the NHL was wrong on on the decision they made. They said it, teams would not be allowed to wear pride jerseys.
1: It felt like they got scared yes. with some of the problems that they had. And rather than saying, you know what, we're going to take a leadership role here, figure this out, and we're going to do this and stick to it. They're just trying to find the way out that causes them the least amount of problems. Right yeah,
0: now. yeah, yeah. So the memo that went out was about these special initiative nights. You know, like we have uh, Diwali, we have Military Appreciation Night. We also and they're we, fun. Can, totally, they're great. And all of those things, the Canucks have special jerseys, right, for the warm-up, not for the game. But for Pride Night, they said no jerseys. We can still have a Pride Night. No teams in the NHL will wear jerseys. But this memo that went out yesterday, one of the things that people are, or sorry, last week, one of the things people got, hooked onto was the NHL has now said no pride tape so this is the tape that the players put on the blade of their stick and the thing is that's not like it's not part of the uniform right and some players yeah. use red some use black some use white there's all different colors and it's supposed to be the the difference there is that the the jersey was like a team thing either the team does it or the team doesn't and the pride tape feels like an individual player could say... But well,
1: why not? If they want to do it, they want to do it.
0: Exactly. And it's just for warm-up, and it should it's a small thing that an individual player can say, I support this or I don't, whatever, it should be fine. But the NHL has said no, none of that whatsoever at all.
1: Okay, I'm trying to process this and trying to figure out what the rationale is. So are they afraid of you're going to have everybody except for one or two players on a team doing this? Like, is it... <sighs> Is it going uh, yeah. to call people out, and they don't want to do it? like it? Just yeah. It's, again, it's coming from like I think a place of fear as of what might For happen sure. as a result.
0: Yes, it it really is, and it just feels uh, backwards. And like you know, we're progressing in so many areas here, but the NHL unfortunately has had a few of these like sort of black spots. You know, hockey in general over the last number of years, and this just is not helping in any way. Their statement is that it distracts from the game. I'm using the air quotes with my hands. That's what they're trying that, yes. to like. Uh, they're trying to um, uh, use that as as their excuse. But, you know, for anyone who uh, identifies as LGBTQ or has family members who are LGBTQ plus or any of those things, this was always like a nice nod that like, hey, you're welcome here. Uh, this is hockey is for everyone. And then they put out this thing. And no matter how they choose to frame it. It feels like hockey is not for everyone, and that sucks.
1: Oh, that does feel that way. I know for this, I feel like they're not going to escape discussion on this by feeling like they're going to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, it's just going to come up again and again and again and later by the in way, the season.
0: Over a thousand NHL players on the roster; seven of them didn't want to wear the jersey last uh, year. So
1: now we're doing this because of seven, seven
0: guys. Yeah, Amazing. out of a
1: thousand. All right, Scott. Thank you for that. Interesting times. So that's Scott Schantz. This is Mornings with Simi. And for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simmy. Okay, so there's some big press conference happening today. What is this all about? Uh,
4: the premier is in Surrey this morning, Kwantlen uh, Polytechnic University, 10.30 a.m. And the advisory from the premier's office says, uh, a town hall meeting to talk about progress on international credential recognition and upcoming legislation. So the House is not sitting this week. Uh, The Premier is going to lay out some detail today, although the general rule, Simi, is you don't give away too much about upcoming legislation because you're supposed to table it in the House before you talk about what's in it. So I think we'll be uh, a little bit of generalities this morning, but this is a major push by the government. They promised this, semi way back in the throne speech. In February, it looks like we're finally going to be getting the legislation when the House sits next week.
1: Okay, so when they say international credentials, like are we talking about doctors, like nurses? What are we talking about? Well, you know, it's interesting how
4: this developed. Uh, if you go back to the throne speech, it's exactly what you say. The government said it was going to make it easier for international doctors and nurses to practice here in British Columbia. Now, there's a lot of overlap in that area. One of the biggest obstacles has been the federal government is also involved in this, Immigration Canada, and the Professional Association. So clearing all those obstacles, it's not just up to the province. But there's been uh, recently a couple of hints that they're going to go well beyond just doctors and nurses, that they're going to look at a bunch of professions. Uh, you may have noticed last week, Simi, in fact, it was said on your show by the head of B.C. ferries, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, Jimenez said, uh, uh, B.C. ferries have been addressing their shortage of deck officers yes. and engineers by recruiting out of Ukraine. And there are a bunch of areas where we have skill shortages in B.C., where you might be able to address some of those, not just by getting people to move here from other provinces, which they're doing, but specifically targeting, targeting international credentials. So uh, what we've heard, and again, no detail, is that this may address a dozen or two professions out there where there are shortages and where the B.C. government believes it can address those shortages by making it easier for international credentials to get recognition here in B.C.
1: Interesting. Okay, so a much bigger kind of idea than what we had started out with.
4: Yeah, I think so. Uh, but again, it, I mean, first of all, I think we won't get the details of everything that's in the legislation today, just some broad hints from the Premier. Also, I see that um, unusual, They uh, since the pandemic, semi when the Premier does a media conference anywhere, usually there's a live t- phone feed option uh, for those of us who don't have big travel budgets anymore. I see they haven't done that for this one, perhaps because it's a town hall session and they, that would be cumbersome to try to manage that. So one of the things I will be doing is hoping, hint, hint, that either CKNW <laughs> or BC1, my friends there, broadcast it because otherwise I'm going to have to rely on the summary after the fact to find out what the heck pr- the Premier said, since I'm not going to be in Surrey this morning at
1: 10.30. I think you can probably count on some kind of coverage of that. I think we kind of got you covered on that one. Uh, also, Good. what are some of the other things that you think Premier Eby might get pressed on here?
4: I think he's going to get asked about these sympathy rallies that have been staged uh, here in B.C. Uh, for Hamas and for what Hamas did in, to Israel um, you know, murder, rape, uh, torture, hostage taking, kidnapping, um, murdering a whole bunch of kids at a music festival it, It's pretty easy to condemn that, and yet we haven't heard from the Premier yet At least I can't find an unequivocal condemnation of one aspect of that So the Premier did condemn Hamas and condemn what happened they didn't go as far as Advanced Education Minister Selena Robinson did. She also condemned the, the sympathy rallies. She condemned the celebration of rape, murder, and torture, kidnapping. Uh, Mayor Sim of Vancouver did that. The prime minister did that. The leader of the opposition, BC and federal did that. John Rustad of the Conservatives did that. Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario did that. I haven't seen that EB did that, but uh, he hasn't you know, he hasn't been asked yet either. So I expect he'll get a question on that today, but we shall see.
1: All right, we are talking with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning and of course we have to figure out what is going on with the Surrey policing thing. Like all of that information that came out, you know, late last week, Vaughn was a big flurry and what's happened as a result.
4: Well, uh, you talked to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth on Friday and I went over the transcript this morning and uh, he told you exactly what he said back in July. It's a done deal. The plan to go back to the RCMP is dead. The province killed it. There's a plan in place to move to Surrey Police and it's got to go ahead and it's going to go ahead and people in Surrey can stop worrying about it because it's happening. So why are we talking about this?
1: Yes, why are <laughs> well, we talking Well,
4: I mean, you've got the letter from the Director of Policing Services who says it isn't happening. Uh, foot dragging by Surrey, misleading numbers by Surrey, can't get meetings with Surrey, uh, can't get going on things. It's all held up. And so when you push Farnworth on this, he says, well, yeah, you know, the letter says what it says. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so what are you going to do about it? Oh, and the mayor of Surrey, of course, come out and said, no, no, no. You know, the province killed the RCMP plan. Yes, they did. So it's up to the province to come up with a transition plan to Surrey Policing Services. And uh, she says, oh, no, no, I'd be happy to meet with anybody and all that. So when you really push Farmworth on this, Where is he going? Well, I see what he told you, and this is the latest fallback position, is the government's bringing in legislation this session to make sure this will never happen again. That a municipality, if it decides to transition to uh, its police force, to a new one, for instance, to a local police force and get rid of the RCMP, they will never be allowed to reverse direction on that. It'll it'll happen. Um, that doesn't really answer the question either, Simi. No, Farmer- it doesn't. Farmer got asked about that, and he said, well, the mayor of Surrey has to obey the law. Okay, well, yeah. Is the legislation going to force her to do that? Will the legislation, in effect, cement the transition because the powers aren't There to make that happen, and he said, "Oh, wait, see what's in the legislation." I I can't tell you what's in the legislation before the legislation is tabled in the legislature. So, you know, this is up in the air, as I see it, Simi. The provincial government is the provincial government, and you know, as an NDP cabinet minister said back in the 1990s, "Don't forget, government can do anything." But I don't know if the provincial government can force. Surrey Council to do this, or whether the province has to somehow or other step in and make it happen, and if Surrey won't go along, what are the penalties
1: for Surrey? I don't know, even know what this looks like. I was thinking about this, yeah. too, because Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey, hasn't said anything, and that was a pretty damning letter to come out and say, you're, you're obfuscating, you're misleading the public, and there hasn't really been an official response from the city of Surrey on this. It's been four days now, given, I mean, it was a Thanksgiving weekend, so maybe there'll be something this week, but I don't know what that looks like if you decide that you're going to bring the hammer down.
4: Well, my read of the news summaries is she did say a couple of things that did get reported, and one of them was in an interview with Global, and it was um, she was asked about, you know, the province keeps saying, we gave, we're giving you $150 million to do this, right? Don't, don't complain about how much it's going to cost. That's why we're giving you $150 million. Why don't you take the $150 million? Locke's response to that is $150 million isn't enough. Surrey doesn't believe that $150 million is enough money. They believe that the transition is going to cost a lot more than that. And here's an interesting quote from the mayor. She says they're going to wear it. She says, meaning the provincial NDP government is going to wear it. So when the bill for all this comes in, and it's more than $150 million, according to the mayor, she wants the provincial government to take the blame for it because otherwise Surrey Council is going to be raising taxes, sticking property owners and residents with the tab, and she wants to make sure when that happens that she's able to say, don't look at me, look at the New Democrats in Victoria. This is the political dilemma for the government is twofold. Do they have the power to actually force the mayor and council to do this And second of all, will the mayor and council find a way to blame the city's NDP MLAs and cabinet ministers for the extra cost? This standover is not open yet, Simi, over yet, Simi, and the political challenges here that will play out could lead right up to the eve of the next provincial election a year from now.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like it with the way that it's been dragging out. It's like a it's like a giant game of chicken.
4: It is, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, there's nothing quite like it because the only analogy I can think of is we have had these kind of showdowns between provincial government and school boards, where school boards have refused to implement education policies or uh, funding changes or whatever, and in those cases, the provincial government has fired the school board, but. You're not going to step in and, and fire entire a council, council and, yeah. You know, and 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 f- they don't want to do that anyway because you know if Mayor Locke's plan to make sure the new Democrats wear fiscal responsibility for this would be you know into nirvana if she were fired and the council were vacated. It this is really a huge challenge. I mean, you look at the powers they have; the powers are all there, but. If the mayor and council won't do it, you know, they're duly elected, too. Uh, Municipalities are creatures of the provincial government. We know that. The constitutional power is there, but the political heat you would take for stepping in and forcing the council to do this and then forcing it to jack up property taxes on its residents, the New Democrats do not want to take the heat for that. This is not over yet.
1: It is not. It, and it's amazing to even think that, isn't it, Vaughn, when you consider how many it's, times we've talked about this?
4: Yeah. No, I mean, Surrey, it's ridiculous. Is, uh, Sur, Surrey is central to forming the government in British Columbia. That's another thing, right? The liberals, uh, back when they were called the liberals, up to Christy Clark's time, uh, the 2017 election, liberals had the majority of seats in Surrey, right? They're now down to, what, two, I think. Another seat is being added, like... Rate payers in Surrey, I am sure, are fed up with this. Residents are fed up with this. But if they're going to get stuck with a giant bill for this transition, um, they are, <laughs> they're going to want to know who to blame politically. And the first bunch that they get a chance to take their anger out on will be in a provincial election a year from now. Brenda Law, well, she doesn't face an election for a couple more years. What, three years yet?
1: Yeah, so we have lots more to talk about. Avon, thank you.
4: Bye-bye, Simi.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Coming up in this half hour, we are going to be talking about shoplifting. Seems to be quite the plague these days. It's resulting in stores having to, you know, pick up and leave neighborhoods, essentially. So we're going to talk about how that can be combated. In the meantime, though, something much more uplifting. Our Scott Shantz is with us now? Because you are, Scott, without a doubt, the most glass half full person I know. Really? Of all the people that you
0: know, I'm have, the most? Have you met people who work in this business, Scott? Well, I, yeah. I mean, but I know that you know a lot of people outside this business, too. Like radio, sure, that generally has some negative people in it. Who are still I would wonderful people. Still wonderful in people. in general. It's just, you know,
1: you deal with a lot of the worst stories every day and it wears you down.
0: Sure. But you
1: are relentlessly optimistic and positive. So tell me, how did you find
0: somebody who was even more positive than you? Well, I think it's like this kindred spirit thing, right? You know, you sort of attract the energy that you put out into the world if you want to be a little bit woo woo about it, I guess. I don't know. But this is a, it's making stories sort of throughout the, the lower mainland. So I had to get in touch with this guy. His name is is Jamie Gill. He's from Vancouver and he is on a mission to high five everyone on the planet. Yes, 8 billion people on the planet and he's out to high five them all. Seems like a lofty goal, Uh, but I I wanted to pick his brain a little bit and find out a little bit more. So I got in touch and I started just by asking him like, I think the most obvious question, why are you even doing this? You know what? I I have always been high fiving people,
5: left, right, and center, shaking hands. And uh, my girlfriend actually pointed it out one day. She's like, "You high five a lot of people," so one thing led to another, and I said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a mission out of this." And I think I could high five everyone on the planet. So um, yeah, I'm on I'm on day 24 now, and you know, 8 billion's never felt so close.
0: (laughs) So do you, like you're keeping track with every single person that you high five. So what number are you at right now? Yeah, that's right. So,
5: um, I just finished at 791. And so I'm getting close to the 800 mark. And with every video clip, I'm just adding a number on those videos there and keeping track.
0: Okay. And this is all posted on your Instagram account, right? That's right. At
5: the Jamie Gill. I've got a TikTok, uh, TikTok, tiktok youtube and a few other platforms going but instagram is the best way to to stay stay on board
0: okay now uh, i mean i'm sure a lot of people are thinking this because like it's a really fun idea totally love it uh but why not like why not start small with like high five everyone in you know vancouver or bc or even canada you're just going for the whole all the glory right right off the bat
5: that's right. I feel it enthused enough. I've got enough energy, and I, I do feel like I can get out there. And the plan is to travel the world once I've cleared Vancouver. So uh, we're going to try to spread the positivity as best we can to every spot that we can reach.
0: Now, has there been any concern about, like, safety here? I mean, it, to, to get every single person in the world, you're going to have to go to some pretty dangerous parts of the planet.
5: You know, I'm just taking it one high five at a time right now. It's uh, I, I'm making sure to, to high five people that want to be high five. Try to spread the positivity. And uh, when it comes time
0: to get to those dangerous places, I guess we'll cross that bridge. And like, what's your timeline? Like, how long do you think that this is going to take you? I mean, it's a really cool way to to travel the world, right? It's a really cool way to sort of like think about this is going to be the precedent under which I I try to go and see all these exotic locales. And it's it's a pretty altruistic thing. I like it. But uh, like, what's your timeline? Like, most people take a long time to go and do something like this.
5: Well, the plan is to take it day by day right now. And, Scott, I've got a plan to try to get this positivity spread throughout the world a little bit quicker. Uh, right now, the goal is to try to build up enough of a following that we might be able to start something, a bit of a wave of positivity and high fives that spread throughout the world. But for right now, I'm taking it one day at a time. And, uh, I, you know, you try not to look at the big number of $8 billion and just look at, all right, I'm trying to get to $1,000. i am trying to get to 10000 so it's, um, it's a day-by-day mission, and I hope to get as many
0: people on board trying to spread the positivity as possible. Okay, and what, like, what has the reaction been like when you're just cruising down the street and you're just throwing out high fives? Tell me what that, what that is like. Well, you know, you must see all sorts of different people. Some might be surprised. Some might have a positive reaction. Some might have a negative reaction. What is that experience like for you?
5: You're absolutely right. And it's really cool to see the difference in reactions. My favorite, and the one that I see most often is people may have their headphones in, they might have their hood up, uh, an umbrella, and they're going about their regular day. And I just come up and I'm like, hey, high five. Can I trouble you for a high five? And all of a sudden their their face and, and whole demeanor shifts into this kind of burst of energy. It's like a, a, a bolt of energy going into them. And uh, they, they, a little smile cracks and then they hit a high five. And I like to think that their walk home or to work or to wherever they were headed is just a little bit happier after they finish that high five, you know?
0: Yeah. It's like one of those, um, micro transactions, right? Like micro social transactions that really, it's just a small thing, but I'm sure that you must, you obviously sound like a really positive guy, but this probably keeps that spirit up for like your whole day. Hey, it
5: totally does. And it's crazy because I might start a day a little tired or, you know, classic Vancouver, the gray might get to you a little bit. And once I get out there and I start cracking a few high fives, I find my days turning around. I feel energized, more positive, And I like to think that that same shift can
0: occur to someone who might be having a bad day out there as well. Very cool. Jamie Gill, at the Jamie Gill on Instagram, uh, on a mission to high-five the world. Congratulations on uh, your progress so far. And like you say, every day you're a minute closer, and uh, we wish you all the best on it. And be sure to keep us posted of how things are uh, turning out, okay? Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate it. Like, how do you not love that guy? I mean, it's a brilliant <laughs> idea, and I really hope he doesn't get killed trying to do this. Um, I was trying
1: to think about how I would feel if a random, you know, in this day and age, Scott. Yeah, but I. You, how about a random person coming up to you being like, hey, 5-5, five, five, and catch somebody at the wrong moment? They'd be like, mm,
0: Yeah, no. but d- it also could <laughs> turn that wrong moment
1: into a sure. positive. Sure. And you're right, because there is this um, reputation that people in metro Vancouver have for not being friendly, like we don't walk, we don't smile when we're walking down the street, like we don't make eye contact. So I know that we have that reputation.
0: And he is, even if it may be a little bit over the top for certain people, he's helping to just sort of shift the balance there.
1: Okay. So you support this 110%.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful thing. Light up the darkness. I think that's Bob Marley.
1: I'm going to (laughs) say, I would love to hear from people on this about how would you, would you be, would you say yes, I'm going to give this person a high five and what a lovely thing to do. Or I feel like people are a little bit more cynical and skeptical these days. So yeah, I'd like to hear what people's thoughts are on that. Would they accept this high five? Simi at cknw.com. Scott, thank you so much for that. This is
6: Mornings with Simi.
1: We all know shoplifting is a big problem these days. You've probably seen the videos, right, online. Maybe you've even seen it happen in person. And there was a recent Leger poll that came out on this topic and it found, here in Canada, that fewer than half of Canadians believe that retail stores are implementing adequate security measures to prevent shoplifting. But what does it mean to even say adequate security measure? Like, what would do the trick here? This is the problem that a lot of retailers are up against right now. We wanted to talk more about it. Michelle Washaliston is with us from the Retail Council of Canada. Michelle, thanks for being here. Good morning. This must be a very frustrating situation for retailers right now.
7: Uh, It is. We are seeing an escalation escalation of shoplifting really across all categories. So that's food, apparel, footwear. Um, You know, I guess I would start off before you get into your questions of saying, People really think that retail crime is victimless, but what we're really trying to push is that it's not, because whether or not you're impacted directly, these steps cost Canadian retailers billions of dollars. And at the end of the day, those costs are passed on to consumers when they go shopping. So it really is an important topic regardless of whether or not you've been personally impacted by this. Right.
1: Mean, I also found it interesting in this leger poll where they said most people actually support security measures like more security cameras, even locking certain products in display cases to prevent theft. I mean is, is that where we are at these days, Michelle?
7: I don't think that there's a you know a one stop um, solution across the board. So what we do as Retail Council of Canada is we work with retailers to help them implement loss prevention strategies. And we do know that in some stores, you know, retailers have added security guards to their stores or they're hiring off duty police officers. But part of the problem too is um, we need to have greater collaboration with police, justice and government. Because if somebody observes a theft, while they're waiting for the police to arrive, if they decide to report that theft, they're responsible for holding that individual. And so if you think about a retailer, perhaps they have to hold that individual in, in their office or, you know, where are they going to hold them within the store? We also know that in some cases, it does take police, um, you know, a number of hours to respond. We've heard of two hours, three hours. In some cases, we've heard of six hours. And so the reason why it's really so hard to talk about theft is it's even difficult to get an accurate depiction of how severe theft is. And that's because so much of it goes unreported. And when you think of how difficult it is to report and how you have to wait for the police and then the charges and whether or not they proceed, um, you know, there's so many different things at play that there really isn't just one solution across the board.
1: Oh, it doesn't sound like it. That is very frustrating. So then, Michelle, what can retailers do or what are they considering at this point?
7: Well, they're doing a lot of things that you talked about, um, whether it's, you know, additional security measures. Um, you know, one of the very important things, too, is de-escalation. And so, you know, retailers are always concerned about staff and customer safety, paramount. And so it's really important, too, for staff and customers not to to engage with someone if they see them committing theft, because at the end of the day, you know it's likely it's likely not worth it. And so, you know what we really work to do is to work on loss prevention strategies. Um, a big component here that we haven't talked about that we could probably do a whole show on is there's really an increase in organized retail crime. And so there's that whole component as well. So it's not just what you see happening in the store if somebody is taking, you know, blueberries or something else like that. We know that there is a significant increase in organized retail crime. And that is a whole, you know, other matter, as you can imagine.
1: Do you think that at some point, like customers are going to start to notice these measures? Like what can, are retailers really packing up and leaving certain areas? Are they considering these things?
7: (sighs) Well, I don't know about that. Um, you know, we represent retailers across the country, and it depends. I mean, it's it's different in different channels. It's different, you know, for different products. When you're talking about um, some of the organized retail trends that we're seeing, a lot of what we're seeing is that you know those items are then resold onto the black market, and so perhaps that theft isn't happening right in the store. Maybe they're taking those pallets not from the store floor, but before they get to the store, and they're reselling them on the black market. So it's You know, it's not as easy as saying what exactly are they doing, but we know that this is a massive issue for all of our members. Business owners are extremely frustrated both by the financial losses but also the concern of safety for their customers and employees. So, um, you know, there's lots of different angles. Retail Council as a whole is meeting and working with government officials and police forces and other justice stakeholders in each of the provinces. We have a lot of work going on in order to really draw attention and to figure out what we can do collaboratively to minimize and to start bringing
1: down these numbers. Right. There is no one answer here, is there?
7: There's not. There's not. um, There's, you know, so many different things. And as we get into the holiday season, I'm reminded that last year we saw a lot with gift card scams, And so when you talk about retail theft, it really does take on so many different forms, some that we see and, you know, some that we don't. So um, we have a lot of work to do and we're trying to, you know, work hard because, as I said, at the end of the day, everyone is impacted because those losses have to come from somewhere. And so we do see retailers will, you know, perhaps have to hike the price of that item or whatever it might be. And we pay at the end of the day as consumers.
1: Just a very quickly here, Michelle, on a final note, though, as we do head into that holiday season, are retailers feeling at all optimistic about that?
7: We actually have a holiday uh, survey coming out in a couple of weeks, so I will let you know at that time with our survey shows, we do an annual shopping survey in advance of the holidays and uh, it's pretty detailed. What we saw last year is that consumers were mindful about how they were spending their money because we saw that they were starting to tighten their belts and so I expect that we will see a lot of that continuing this year.
1: All right we'll see what happens we'll have to have you back. Michelle thank you. Thank you. That is Michelle Wasalishan from the Retail Council of Canada talking about the frustration with shoplifting. I mean, not just, you know, shoppers who are frustrated with that, but obviously retailers in a big way trying to find that balance of how do you fight back against this? How do you protect your customers? How do you protect your workers? And how do you protect yourself from losses on that one? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.
6: This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: now for a while there post pandemic it did seem like workers were going to make some advances, right? I'm sure more than a few of us thought, "Hey, I am very deserving of a raise and it's high time I got one." And a lot of people would have that on their agenda, maybe not for this year but definitely for 2024. But it also sounds like employers might be dialing that back a little bit. There are concerns about inflation, economic uncertainty. So if you were thinking, you know, I'm gonna find a way to get into my boss's office, my manager's office, and ask for that raise, well, might be a little trickier than you thought. So joining us now is Anand Parsant, who's an actuary and compensation consultant with Ecker L T D. Anand, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. It is so hard to go in and ask the boss for a raise, and Why is that?
8: Well, as you mentioned, we found that, you know, organizations across Canada continue to kind of grapple with this, you know, ongoing economic uncertainty. You know, we have, you know, a, a tight labor market on one hand, but then on the other hand, you know, we have rising interest rates and, you know, a possible looming uh, recession. So um, it's it's been a little bit dicey. And we found in our survey that, uh, a lot of organizations are, are still uncertain. Uh, you know, 58% of the organizations that we we uh, surveyed are still unsure about their, you know, compensation planning uh, budget for, uh, for 2024. Um, well, we found that uh, 3.9% was kind of the national average in terms of what they're planning for salary increases, and that is slightly uh, lower than um, last year's forecast, which was... Um, you know, four point four percent. So we see a, a, a tick down in terms of the salary increases, but I guess it has to be taken into context because last year was kind of the highest increase in you know uh, two decades. So we're coming off of a high. I think where we're actually seeing um, you know the, the changes in the past when we we've, we've done these surveys, salary increases have always been higher than inflation, and that crossed in 2021. And we saw the inflation go higher than the salary increases. And that's occurred for the last couple of years. So I think all Canadians have been feeling it, uh, you know, when they go to the grocery store, or the gas pumps and everything uh, so so far. We're hoping that, I guess, uh, inflation does um, come down with, you know, the increases in interest rates and then that salary line does go above uh hopefully by the end of this year.
1: I know we hope though, right? But in the meantime, people Mm -hmm. have to work up that courage to kind of go in there. And and it's hard for everybody to make ends meet right now. What is the best way to approach this?
8: Yes. I mean, I think um, a lot of um, organizations are trying to help employees uh, during this time. So they're, um, you know, it's still a tight labor market. So, you know, Unemployment is low; it's still around, you know, five and a half percent, and employees have the ability to to, to move around uh, still. So, employee employers are looking at kind of a, a total rewards perspective in terms of how to keep and attract and retain their their employees. So, it's been top of mind in terms of how do we help them. And and you know, there's kind of been financial wellness that's been added to the uh, to the um, package. Uh, They're looking at enhancing benefits and and so forth. So it's not just the pay increases. I think they're looking at this more from a holistic standpoint in terms of the whole package.
1: So think about other things that might make you happy at work.
8: Exactly. I think, um, you know, I think a recent survey said that uh, a lot of uh, employees would would stay if they had uh, better benefits. Than just having the the pay increase, so they they rather trade off uh, and have you know enhanced benefits and, and, and pension and and so forth within the organization uh, rather than just have the the, the, the pay increases.
1: Hmm. Okay, is that going to be a trend? Do you think, Anand? Is this are big companies getting nervous about pay increases?
8: Well, I think it, it's 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 complicated because of what's happening in our economy. We have kind of uh, organizations that are doing really well, some that are not doing so so well, and some that are kind of in the middle. So each organization is kind of looking at, you know, what's the best strategy. So, for instance, when we, when we did the survey, certain industries such as mining and, and uh, uh, technology and, and professional uh, services, they had higher increases in base salaries. But then you have on the flip side, other organizations and healthcare, education, charities, they can't give the The large increases so their their ability um, to attract and retain has to be influenced by by that so they're looking at you know what, what how can they you know have em- employees stay and be engaged and so forth and that has to look at you know culture looking at uh, re- having more remote work uh, looking at um, you know uh, other benefits and so forth that are that are not monetary so I think you know that that 's where organizations are looking at different strategies, depending on you know what industry they 're in
1: tough times for people out there. Anand, thank you so much for your time Thank you. That is Anand Parsan, an actuary and compensation consultant with Ecker Ltd talking about it is challenging out there for people if you 're you 're trying to make ends meet, you definitely deserve a raise and going in there and asking for it and then getting it, which is completely different because now employers are feeling nervous about economic conditions, about inflation. So perhaps they are not as willing to discuss that raise that you certainly deserve after all this time. So there's going to be some tension between that cautious approach that employers have and that push for higher wages because the workforce is challenging right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I tend to uh, geek out sometimes with some stories. That is certainly the case with this next one we're going to be doing. So a few years back when I returned to school to finish my degree, one of the courses that I had to take to kind of fill out the requirements was a course on anthropology. Turned out I loved it. So now I'm fascinated by stories regarding the evolution of humans and the new evidence that we have. So this latest one is definitely a story we are going to talk about. It has to do with ancient footprints that were found in white sand new mexico what are so significant about them well that's what our guest is going to help us with it's dennis o'rourke who's the anthropology department chair at the university of kansas dennis thank you so much for being here my pleasure what is so significant about these footprints that were found
3: well i think the real significance is their age um they're very old compared to what most people expected them to be i think um most anthropologists and archaeologists um, thought that people arrived in North America sometime after 15,000 years ago or so. Um, these footprints date to 21 to 23,000 years ago. And uh, that's significantly earlier than most people thought for a long time um, because people weren't thought to be here that early. Uh, I'd also mention that when those dates were first published, they were quite controversial, and there, there was some concern that they, the dates may have been an error. And the investigators have just recently um, done some redating of materials in two or three different ways, and have confirmed that the original dates of 21 to 23,000 um, seem to be quite firm and reliable now. So it's going to change the way we think a little bit about how how and when people arrived in the Americas.
1: Right, a little bit. Dennis, I feel like it's going to change things a lot, right? Because what was the previous thinking?
3: Well, the previous thinking was after the last glacial maximum, sometime after 13,000, 14,000, once the ice sheets during the last glacial maximum had um, begun to recede, and opened up land space for people to move across Beringia and further south was the time that people initially penetrated south into um, the interior of North American continent and then on to South America. Um, so this is about eight to ten thousand years older than than those original assumptions and those those ideas about. Uh, colonization after the last glacial maximum had been around for a long time but this clearly shows that people were um, south of the ice sheets during the last glacial maximum uh, which implies they likely arrived before the the last glacial maximum uh, reached its peak While while there was still um, uh, pathways available south from Beringia
1: Okay, so what does that then tell us, like, what is the significance of this? What does it mean to know that, that humans were here thousands of years earlier?
3: Well, for those of us that work in this area, it means that we have, in my view, we've underestimated the uh, speed with which early populations migrated from uh, northeast Asia into Beringia, that they were adept and adapted in ways that allowed them to exist quite successfully in an area that we thought was probably not uh, inhabited or at least not inhabited by very many people. Um, And that um, many of them um, moved south much earlier than we expected. And I think that begins to tell us that, um, Early peoples were quite adept and well-adapted to their environment. They were resourceful. Uh, They could move quickly. They could migrate rapidly. We've seen that in other parts of the world uh, in recent years as well. Um, So I think it's making us take a different look about the, the skills and abilities and adaptive strategies of early prehistoric peoples in ways that we hadn't before.
1: So what are the next steps now? Does that mean that we we change where we look? Do we look for different types of evidence?
3: Um, I think both. Uh, I I think we continue to look for early sites. Um, I suspect, I don't know, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm an anthropological geneticist, but I suspect when we were so convinced that people didn't arrive in the Americas until after the last glacial maximum, We might not have been looking as hard as we might have for sites before that time because we wouldn't have expected to find them. Now I think we are aware that there were people here considerably earlier. Archaeologically, I think and I hope we will be looking much more carefully for um, earlier archaeological sites to get a, uh, a richer picture of who the people were that arrived so early. As a geneticist, I think there are, there's work to do um, uh, looking at the genetic variation in people, early peoples in the Americas, but also in the um, uh, faunal material and, and floral materials that we can extract from uh, sediments to reconstruct paleo environments to, to get a sense of what kind of environments were present that people were living in, um, so we can get increasing resolution to the kinds of of, uh, adaptations, um, cultural and otherwise, that these early peoples uh, may have exhibited that allowed them to be so successful very early in a new place.
1: So do we know what what type of humans
3: these were? Oh, they were Homo sapiens, just like all of us.
1: Okay. And so do we know how they built civilizations? Do we know what they ate? I guess technology helps with all this now, too, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, technology helps a lot. Um, we it, we don't know exactly these earliest people because we're just now beginning to realize, I think, in a real sense that they were here um, uh, in the Americas that early. Um, but But based on Populations that we do know rather a lot about just a few thousand years later, uh, we have a sense of the breadth of their diet in terms of uh, hunting and prey items and plant utilization. Uh, We know something about movement patterns and settlement patterns somewhat later. We might expect that we can project those back a little earlier to give us some insight in where to look and the nature of the data that we might want to look at to see if there are some differences early on that we might not have appreciated before uh, to get us a give us a better understanding of how people were adapting to new landscapes.
1: Well, sounds like an exciting time to be in that line of work. Dennis, thank you so much for your time today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's Dennis O'Rourke, the Anthropology Department Chair at the University of Kansas. Very exciting find in White Sands, New Mexico, where they found some ancient footprints. And you think, oh, well, it's a big deal. No, this has completely upended uh, what scientists and researchers and anthropologists all thought about when humans arrived here in North America. It changed the date by thousands of years. So now it turns out... There was the presence of humans in the Americas 23,000 years ago. It is fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. seem to be talking about old things this hour. We didn't plan that. It just kind of worked out this way. Because my question now is, does BC need a fossil emblem? And if we had one, does it need to be an elasmusor? Because... turns out that we're headed in that direction. Our next guest would absolutely say yes to both of those questions. It's Ronna Ray Leonard, who's with us, NDP MLA for Courtney Comox and Parliamentary Secretary for Seniors. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thanks for talking about the elasmusor. Why is this so significant to the area that you represent?
6: Well, the Elasmasore was discovered by a local resident, Mike Trask, along with his daughter, Heather, back in 1988, along the, the banks of the Puntledge River. So it's very much um, close to the heart and hearth of, of the Comox Valley, where the Elasmasore, the very first north of, west of the Rockies uh, and unique in all of uh, North America, was discovered.
1: You know what? I only learned about this recently, that this was found back in, what, 1988?
6: That's correct. 1988. It's uh, 35 years ago now.
1: I, and I had not heard about this at all. We are not very good about publicizing this kind of stuff. So why do we need to make this the fossil emblem of BC? I think
6: you just hit on it. The The notion of having a provincial Emblem just raises its profile not only for uh, recognizing and helping us to identify um, identify this, this piece of who we are, this very natural this natural history resource that we have, um, but it also conveys it to the whole wide world
1: it 's really scary and ugly though <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of think it
6: has a pretty sleek body uh It has a, a huge head with big vicious teeth. Uh, but then it has this long neck and then this body that uh, fills out like a, um, a, I don't know, when I see it, I think of a, of a, of a dolphin or a whale and, and has flippers and then a short tail. <laughs> well,
1: you know what, You're a, you must be a very positive person because when I look at it, I think that thing would be trouble in the water is what I look at it. I think of jaws when I see it. Yes. So yes. what does it mean when we say that we would like to make it the fossil emblem of BC? Like what happens if we do that? What does that mean?
6: well it's it's established to highlight the unique and important elements of bc and it it becomes part of our identity like if, if you think about the the bc's uh, floral emblem is the, the dogwood i have a teacup from 1956 that my grandmother purchased uh you know these are things that become part of who we are and by by having an official status, it does that raising up of the public profile. But it also helps bring attention, Since, hence I'm talking with you today, uh, to to draw attention to what we need to do to prevent the loss of fossils, how we can manage them, recognizing that, it's as I said in the house, it's not finders keepers when you find a fossil. It, it belongs to the crown, and you may have found something that is really scientifically uh, significant, and you can be a part of that. So this is a way for us to raise that profile and make sure that people understand uh, what happens when you when you find a fossil and what you should do to make sure that it, it gets preserved and, and we don't lose that piece of history.
1: So has that been an ongoing process then, like the first one was found 35 years ago, and over time more have been found in the area?
6: Well, interestingly, uh, Mike has a twin brother, Pat Trask, and he found a second elasmothor in, in 2000, uh, 2020. And it's a juvenile, and it's even more intact than, than the one that Mike and Heather found. And it has contributed a lot to science. They're, they're, they're able to study more and more of its details to get more and more information out of it.
1: Okay, so where are we at then with the, the work to make this species fossil emblem? well it has
6: uh it started off as a private members bill that i introduced in february and it never made it to the floor of the house uh, but now it's a government bill introduced by the minister of tourism arts and culture a very for me a very popular minister today <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well you would say that
1: that's your bill right they're taking on your bill so <laughs> yeah
6: so it's uh it's gone through first reading and now it has gone through second reading the, there's there's still a third reading and then royal ascent and once it's royal ascent it's official it's real and it's a lasting legacy that recognizes the Trask brothers and the Trask family
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. We appreciate your time
6: well, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me and sharing the the beauty and joy and an opportunity that comes with uh, the, having an official emblem uh, for BC's fossil.
1: Well, I love learning things, and that's what I learned today. So thank you so much for your time. That's Runner Ray Leonard, NDP MLA for Courtney Comox, Parliamentary Secretary for Seniors, uh, but in her role as the Parliament or the MLA for Courtney Comox, uh, helping to recognize the Elasmosaur. Now, here's the thing. I didn't know anything about the Elasmosaur until this story popped up in the news. So if the idea Idea was to give it a higher profile that part of it has certainly worked I mean, this is a marine dinosaur kind of reptile that made its home in that area around Vancouver Island 80 million years ago. And now this bill is kind of making its way through the legislature to become BC's first official fossil emblem. Apparently, local paleontology enthusiasts in that part of Vancouver Island have been trying to do this for something like five years to get the elasmosaur better recognized. And that could be... Be, um you know what happens as a result of this I'm telling you I think it's a scary looking thing but hey great bc's gonna have a fossil emblem it sounds like